Hello and thank you for tuning in for another episode of Soundstage Access, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and my guest this week is Julian Slater, an Oscar-nominated sound designer, editor, and mixer, whose work includes Hot Fuzz, Mad Max Fury Road, and Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle. In our conversation, we cover a wide range of topics, among them, his relationship with sound and using it as a powerful storytelling device, how he has worked with Edgar Wright since their first collaboration on Shaun of the Dead, and the creative challenge that was Baby Driver, for which he was nominated with two Academy Awards this past year. So without further ado, let's go to our conversation. Julian, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, because I know it's been a very busy 2017 for you. You worked on five different projects over the course of the year, this past one, including Jumanji and Baby Driver, which of course we'll talk about. But to provide context for our listeners, I want to take a step back in your career and talk about how you got here. So you began by studying at a school of audio engineering in the UK. That's right. You were telling me that you ran your own sound company before going freelance. And about five years ago, you moved from the UK over to here. So looking back at all the experiences and knowledge you have about sound now, what were some of the first concepts and tricks you felt like you were grasping about the job during your early days in London? And what were some of the biggest creative opportunities that you feel you have been given now that you moved over to the US? You know, I was very lucky in the very, very, very early embryonic days of my career. There were two directors that I worked with who were the kind of directors who think about sound a lot. One of my first movies I did was Leaving Las Vegas for Mike Figgis. Working with Mike taught me the value of lack of sound as much as the value of having lots of sound. If you watch Leaving Las Vegas, which funnily enough I did only like six months ago, I was giving a talk about it. And there really are lots of moments where we took out the sound to focus on what was happening with the story. He taught me a lot about the use of sound and it's not just about piling on sounds and making it brash and, you know, you can do a lot with simplistic sound as much as you can with complicated sound. I was very lucky enough just to kind of pick up on what sound is capable of doing, slightly thinking outside of the box and not necessarily reflecting what's on screen. Brad Bird speaks beautifully about the role of sound as a huge part of the cinematic experience and a great emotional tool. And, and finding the right sound for an environment, a vehicle, a weapon, you know, whatever it is, it can require a lot of searching for inspiration and experimenting. I think sound is a huge part of the experience. It's a great emotional tool. And people who were very clever with sound and, and creating sound effects that felt more like things should sound rather than what they did sound like, recognize, I think, what a huge part of the dreaming experience of movies is about. So if we look at your role as a sound effects editor, what do you think is the creative process in regards to selecting sound effects for a film? And to what degree do you work with your Foley team to record brand new sounds before you jump back in a sound library you may have and use some of that stuff? The aim of what we're trying to achieve, I always think you're always trying to strive to create something unique and something that is in some way sets it apart from either the previous thing that you've worked on or the previous incarnation of what the director's worked on. You want, you want to put your own stamp on it and you, you want to service the director. It's, you know, whatever the director, he or she has produced visually is going to be unique and you want to reflect that. 
with a mixture of using, you know, going out and recording stuff, utilizing Foley, and then probably just as important as that is manipulating existing stuff and layering. Because of course, the great thing with sound is it's multi-layered. It's like a it's like an onion. There's so many different layers. So by taking three you know, three sonic sounds that are existing and have been pre-created, say, for example, from a library, you can blend those three things together, EQ, compress, time stretch and whatever, and make a new sound, a complete new sound from that. So you are always trying to, I am definitely trying to always make something unique and new. And yeah, you work with the Foley team, you work with, that's not so much as the as the sound editor, but as a supervising sound editor, which is kind of you're responsible for pulling through all the various different members of the sound team to channel their energies into making this unique thing. That's what my role is. It's, a, it's about kind of working with the Foley guys or girls and saying that this is what we want to create here and reviewing it. And if it works perfect, if it doesn't, let's try it again. And doing that, that's, that's, that's pretty much across the whole uh, spectrum of the different disciplines, whether it's the dialogue editor, the ADR, the sound design, the Foley. It's all about kind of this back and forth with, you know, the various people to, to make sure that we are all not only working together, but all trying to create something that's unique. If we could get technical for just a moment, I think it's interesting to look at how in a time where Pro Tools has become such a user-friendly uh, software, you know, the line between sound editing and mixing is getting slimmer and slimmer. And what I mean by that is that as a sound editor, you know, you can begin tweaking and polishing the soundtrack of a movie, even if it's in its rough form, way before handing it over to the sound designer or re-recording mixer. So could you talk about the way Pro Tools has helped you approach more complex projects in a, in a very creative way. And how do you lay out and organize your Pro Tools space when you begin working on a project? Yeah, Pro, Pro Tools and technology has changed things dramatically. And it would be lovely to say that it's made life easier for someone like me because you can do so much more within Pro Tools. But it's a bit of a bait and switch because the demands that are put on to us have increased greatly. So to your point, Someone like me, because of what Pro Tools is capable of doing, I, I'm now coming on even earlier than I did before. With Edgar, I come on very early on in the director's cut, which normally someone like me comes on board after the director's cut, after the director or approaching the end of the director's cut, which is like this 10-week period where they first get to you know, do their first pass on the movie before they show it to the studio. With Edgar... I come on board like week, I think on Baby Driver, I came on board on week three. Week yeah, four. I read like... Yeah, very early on. My next show, which I was speaking to you about earlier, I'm coming on board day one of the director's cut because the director is aware of what is capable of being done. Even at that stage, we can start building tracks. We can start doing mixes, temp mixes. And I'm literally in the room next, like I am with Edgar, with this other director, I am literally in the room next to him and the cutting room and the, the sharing of ideas and the sharing of audio and the bouncing back and forth between picture and sound is starting from day one, which is what Pro Tools enables you to do. So that's, that's great, but the flip side of it, the demands are much greater. You know, you are, you are required to produce an amazing sounding soundtrack very early on in the process. And 
you know, and your your part mixing as you edit because you are capable because the technology allows you to do that, which doesn't mean that mixing is a is a redundant form at all. It just means more of the kind of head scratching and more basic and laborious aspects of mixing can be negated before we actually hit the mix stage. Again, talking about how the demands are then increased. You know, we are now hitting this kind of realm of doing one man mixes. You know, I've done two big shows now where I've done one man temp mixes, you know, which is would have been unheard of like three or four years ago. The technology allows you to do that, which is great. I mean, it puts more pressure on someone like, you know, me to produce an amazing soundtrack over the course of three or four days. Pro Tools allows you to do that. And it is you can do that. It just makes it a more of a moving your resources to a different area of the process, if you know what I mean. I do. And I think hopefully what it does is that even when you're looking at these rougher cuts, even early in the beginning, whether it's among you guys or showing it to the studio or whatever, seeing a non-finalized cut with polished sound, it emotionally, I think, allows you to immerse yourself in a movie. Again, even if it's rough, because the sound is so clean, it must feel like... Yeah, totally. And the directors that are aware of that are the di- exactly the kind of directors that I want to work with. The directors who are aware of how important sound can play. Whether it's making sure there's no bumps and scratches and jumps and whatever, you know, rough... There's, there's two aspects to that. There's the ironing out the technical thing so nothing bumps and nothing jolts the audience member when they're watching that mix. But then there's also, of course, the more the story-enhancing elements and lending the soundscape doing anything that can help with the storytelling process. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about a few of the projects you worked on, and one specifically from 2015 is, is Mad Max Fury Road, on which you worked as one of the sound designers. And, and perhaps people should know that the movie had an incredible production process. They shot in the Namibian desert from June to December of 2012. Then they went back and reshoot additional photography between September and November 2013. And you guys were deep into post-production until the release in May 2015. And I think it, it, it speaks to the level of quality and dedication that was required from everyone and I want to ask you about the process of collaborating not only with you know the director George Miller but also with the entire sound team to create a soundtrack that matched the crazy visuals yeah I mean I was a much in fact on Mad Max more than most movies for the last 15 years I was a much smaller cog in the machine than I normally am in fact it was the first time I hadn't supervised a movie that I'd worked on and it won an Oscar for, for, for the sound. And I thought, I was wondering if I should give up. I wondered if someone was trying to tell me something. Again, an amazing director, George Miller, who understands what sound can bring to the process. And I, at one point, he was going to have no score in that movie. It was all going to be just the sounds of the engines and the, you know, all the design. I mean, that, that didn't, and thankfully it didn't turn out to be true because the Junkies, Junkie XL's it's uh, amazing. score, it's an amazing is, score. Is, is an amazing score. You know, but George is the kind of director who is extremely methodical and extremely detailed in his approach. You know, he, there was like a Bible. We were given a Bible for each vehicle in the movie and its own backstory. You know, it wasn't just like this is the war rig uh, and it should sound like this. It is. This is the war rig. This is why it's got these bits on it. This is how it came to be so that we could then try and think about the sounds and the history of each vehicle. And that's what he was like across every single department. So you, all directors who think about sound in fine detail, it's, it's not just the sound aspect of it. It's every aspect of it. And, you know, George is just a delight to work with because he, he's very thankful 
you know, he would, at the end of each reel, uh, he would stand up and give everyone a sh shake everyone by the hand individually and say, thank you very much. And again, he's a great director because he's one of the directors who constructs an amazing playground and then passes it over to you and says, now let's see what you can do with it. He doesn't micromanage. He's happy to let you run with what he's passed to you and see where it goes. As the world fell, each of us in our own way was broken. It was hard to know who was more crazy. Me or everyone else. Now, I'm just curious about that because I didn't specifically have a question about it, but I'm always fascinated when there's so much work that you got to take over and you, you know, I imagine you sit down and you look at, you know, whether it's an assembly or a rough edit and you're like, wow, so much to work on. Do you start by working on each reel individually or do you try and do a full pass to get through it? And how do you, how do you manage work when you're starting from scratch on a film? Well, invariably the director will have a hit list of things that they feel are most important. Obviously in the Avid, the director and the picture editor are putting temp sounds in from from day one. And then there are, or there are always those sequences where, and it could be three or four, it could be the entire movie, where they feel that what they are doing in the Avid isn't conveying what it is that they want it to convey. So typically when you start, there'll be a hit list of certain things that they want as soon as possible, just to try and help them, um, you know, convey what it is they're trying to convey. Once you kind of got that out the door, then you start to watch the movie as a whole and break down. And it depends. It depends on the budget of the movie. If I've got four other sound effects editors and sound designers, then you'll watch the movie and someone will say, hey, I'll take that sequence. I'll take this sequence. Sometimes if it's, you know, I've done movies before, uh, like when I first got here, you know, I was doing these Blumhouse movies where it was just me pretty much doing everything. And so it's literally just, oh man, I've got to just, to hit it and start from frame one and just go for it go for it and you know get to the get to the end the creative process isn't just a one pass thing for me I, I i can't just start at the beginning and go to the end and do it in a linear fashion i invariably always get stuck on something i always struggle for figuring out what it is i'm trying to do at a certain point and i've learned i can just forget it move on get to the end and then go back and do a second pass and then do a third pass and do a fourth pass. So I'm not the kind of person who can literally start on real one and work methodically through all the way to real five or real six and get it done. And that's just not how I work. You said in the past that you're a big fan of creating sound that enhances the storytelling and, and does not push away from it. So I was curious, why do you think sound operates on a far more subconscious level? How do you try and engage an audience through sound in a very emotional way? Well, there's just, I mean, there's a, there's a whole variety of tools to do that, you know, and, and, the, and that goes back to the thing I was saying about Mike Figgis, the lack of sound as much as a lot of sound. For me, the cardinal sin of what I do is to take the audience out of the movie, either by something in the cinema being so loud that the, you know, you're putting your fingers in your ears and you're saying, saying to your person you're watching with my god this is too loud that's the cardinal sin not understanding the dialogue that's a cardinal sin and anything that bumps you and doesn't pull you through that amazing pictorial vista that a director has painted you know the great the reason why I like working in cinema as opposed to tv I mean I used to have my own post facility in London and we did a mixture of tv and feature film work and I I've always preferred working in that feature film environment because 
in that first run in a theater, you have absolute control pretty much of how that movie is going to be listened to. You know, movies are still, even to this day, one of the last bastions of people focusing on something for 90 minutes, two hours, not checking their phones. Pretty People are still pretty good at that. And focused on a single art form and being absorbed by it. You know, these days that doesn't happen very often because we're all looking at our phones, you know, the whole time and social media and all that kind of stuff. In the cinema, it's still pretty, it's still pretty pure. And you have an attentive and a captive audience who also have paid money to go and see that. I'm, t- I'm not, I and mean, this isn't an anti-Netflix thing at all, but I can't tell you the amount of Netflix, as I, you know, I watch Netflix and it says continue watching. I've got so many things that I just haven't finished watching for a whole variety of reasons. When you go to a cinema and you pay that 20 bucks or whatever, you're invested. You're going to watch that through to the end, by and large. That's why I want to work in cinema. There's still a magic about it. And you you inherently have a captive audience. And then you have, like for me, I have this sonic palette and this all these kind of avenues to explore, whether it's with the levels, whether it's with adding sound, taking away sound, whether it's panning within the environment that you can use to then enhance that experience even further. So let's move on and, and talk about Baby Driver for a little bit. And and before we get into a technical, what I think is, is fascinating about this is that you guys had to create a workflow that I don't think had been ever invented, not to this degree of complexity. And about preparing the film, you had this to say, quote, in the UK, you work in time code. In America, it's feet and frames. But for Baby Driver, you had to work with bars and beats, musical notations. You tempo map every piece of music, find out it's given tempo at any given time, pitch and time stretch and tempo map each sound that isn't music to match the music. And that's how you create an organic feel. This is the ultimate example of what a film soundscape completely does when working together. So could you talk about the conversations before you got into the editing stage? And how did you and Edgar pre-plan to make this movie work, not just on a conceptual level, but exchanging cuts, as you were saying, between you and editorial and back to you and back to editorial? Well, where do you start? I mean, Edgar is a genius. I mean, he really is a genius. And and. I feel like with every Edgar movie, they are all so unique sounding. I mean, they really are. And Edgar's the kind of director, he's got various projects in various states of flux, whether it's in his head or with the studio. And when he first told me the concept of Baby Driver, I was already blown away. And, you know, at that point, I didn't, I thought it was just going to be like a sequence or two. I didn't really think it was going to be across a whole movie. And we met for breakfast way in advance of the of the shoot to talk about ideas and how technically we do it. I actually have very little contact with him during the shoot because he's in his crazy mode of trying to yeah. push this thing over the finishing line. Like I say, with Baby Driver, I came on board very early on, and I think it was week three of the director's cut. And I remember, I mean, he had only cut, I think, the first two reels, two and a half reels of the six reels. So he only wanted me to see the first two reels. And I remember sitting down in my, and I started on my own. I, I started, and I think it was two weeks or a week before any of my other crew members started. And I remember seeing it and just being utterly kind of amazed. I was dazed and amazed by what he had managed to do in camera. I was also dazed by the possibility of what it could be. And then also kind of, dumbstruck on how to actually do it because I'm not I mean I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a musical person you know like I I listen to music all day every day 
but I'm not a, I do not know how to play music. I started to learn the piano when I was like 11 and 12, gave up two years later and realized that this was something I needed help with, the whole thing of how musically you make things work. Because how we normally do it in the sound editorial world, we could have achieved what we were trying to achieve, but it would have been so insanely complicated. It would have just taken us, we'd never have got it done. So I was very lucky with regards to that aspect that Stephen Price, who was the composer on the movie, who had also composed on The World's End, who's a good friend of mine. Stephen was a music editor. He on uh, Scott Pilgrim, who's the music editor. And in between, way back on Scott Pilgrim when he was a music editor and we were good friends, to Baby Driver, he'd become this Oscar-winning film composer who did Gravity and Fury and Suicide Squad. And to have that kind of level of familiarity with the not only the composer but someone who can give advice on how you approach it musically i mean literally every day i was skyping or on the phone with steve about how to do stuff and his music editor bradley and so what you have to do is going back to the thing of not alienating the audience the syncopation of the sound design to the music is one aspect of the oral journey that we take the audience through there's a whole thing with the tinnitus and how babies hearing stuff but with regards to the syncopation it's funny a a friend of mine who saw the movie recently said and he's a picture editor said man that's amazing those gunshots are uh, are in sync with the the music and uh i'm saying yeah but it's not just the tequila sequence it's everything i mean pretty much everything dog barks train horns footsteps car squeals engine revs and the reason why he didn't pick up on it, it was almost deliberate because it, you don't pick necessarily appreciate that everything is working as one thing because you don't want to. You don't want to get the audience. Again, you don't want after 45 minutes the audience member to say, oh, all right, I get it. It's in sync with the music, and it's, but it's now getting distracting. It's about trying to do it in a way that supports what is happening on screen. And this is just how I work, to be honest with you. The first few weeks when I start a movie, I'm like, oh my God, how on earth am I going to do this? Even the simple stuff, because of that pressure to to do something unique and to at least service the director's wishes and desires, and hopefully much more than that, and to paint sonic environments that perhaps they hadn't thought of. So that pressure that I feel, I always feel the most at the very beginning of the journey. And so with something like Baby Driver, where you've got that pressure anyway, and then it's the, my God, how on earth are we going to do this? And look where you are. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and of course, it is a collaborative effort in the same way that without Edgar having that amazing vision and the ideas, I wouldn't be able to, obviously, I wouldn't be able to do it. And, you know, it's the team of people around me. You know, it's not just, I'm very lucky that I'm the person who gets to sit here and wax lyrical about it to someone like you. But, you know, it's, it's a team of people. It's a whole people. team behind It's it. a whole team of people. Yeah. Absolutely. I want to ask you about the opening five, six minutes because I think it's an amazing opportunity when you open a movie to establish not just the character world, but the rules of the movie. You know, how is this movie going to play, whether you pick it up or not? And hopefully you don't because it means that you're fully, as you said, fully immersed in the film. So the Sony logo turns into the tinnitus and through reverb, I think it becomes strings of the score 
and that eventually becomes bell bottoms the beginning of bell bottoms by yeah. uh, john spencer blues explosion and i can imagine it must have been crazy to work with a song that kept changing in tempo i'm gonna you know talk about this first sequence for a second because bell bottoms doesn't really have a specific tempo just no, it's a it roller coaster that keeps changing totally. so what were some of the challenges and solutions you found along the way when you were working on the opening uh, car chase so the sony logo thing that came later that came after we've done I think maybe even after we'd done a couple of previews. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, we were working on a movie that was all about, or was certainly lent itself to the sound design and mix aspect. And I thought to myself, I really want to do something that pricks up the audience ears from the very moment, you know, how can we do something that literally from frame one, the audience member can appreciate that this is a movie where sound is important. And so the Sony logo ping was like a perfect opportunity. So yeah, what happens is you, the Sony logo ping is reverbed off. It was repitched anyway. Steve had done some strings that were going to go into bell bottoms as per Edgar's request. So I send Steve Price the Sony logo and I say to him, can you pitch that musically as, as best as you feel is correct? So that works going into your score. So in the same key and the same pitch. He sends it back to me. I then do a thing where I reverb it, put it into an infinite reverb. So it goes ping, and then that becomes a constant thing. And then the brake squeal of the Subaru WRX that pulls up is also pitched into the same thing so that it's a, it's a constant evolving sound that hopefully the audience member really does from the get-go. Even just subconsciously, they're like, hello, something, something's interesting is going on here. You know, going back to when I first saw that first reel, that was the thing that struck me. Like literally from the very first moment that, 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 that the movie starts, it's like a, a, a gun going off. And movies don't start like that normally. This, you've got this thing where he, he's sitting in his car and he's doing this, he's singing away to it and uh, you don't quite understand what's going on. And then there's this, this insane car chase where it's a, very, and it's a very visceral car chase, like all the car chases, it's not blue screen, it's all practical. Yeah, we wanted it to sound unique we wanted it to sound visceral we wanted it to sound in the same way that the movie i think of it as you're being grabbed by the scruff of your neck and being pulled on this kind of journey and so we wanted to make sure that sonically we supported all that and so you know going back to your point with the john spencer blues explosion yeah that tempo of that track is is going all over the place it really is and what we had to figure out was so all those police sirens whether they're the whalers or the yelpers or there's some european ones in there they're all sunk throughout that whole sequence to the John Spencer's blues explosion, which means that they are in sync and that they are musically correct. But quite often that means that they just sound ridiculous. You know, when he's going, bell bottoms, bell bottoms, and the tempo's going, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. That means that the police sirens are just sounding crazy. They're working musically with that piece of music. They just sound ridiculous. So then we have to figure out when we're going to hear them in the mix versus when we're not going to hear them. And so you then start this whole process of not, it's not only how you 
get them all in sync, but it's then deciding when to hear them for the audience member so that they sound musical, that they sound not so musical, that they get completely lost, and that they sound believable as a cinematic sound. And that's that was the trick for the whole movie, to be honest with you. It was how to keep stuff interesting, how for it not to distract, how technically to do it, how for it to sound believable as a piece of cinematic sound design and musical. When talking about character perspective, I think there are several tools you use to bring the audience into maybe perspective. One of them being, you know, the tinnitus. Anytime that music isn't playing, you know, because it's the one thing that's keeping baby mm -hmm. comfortable, you have in one way or another, from my understanding, you have tinnitus yeah. present there. So that's something to emote tinnitus. So yeah. sometimes it's hell strings from Steve. But it's always a constant tone that is emotive of what is going through, yes. But I like what Edgar said about it, because if you have this, again, hopefully you're not picking it up, but when music is reintroduced, hopefully, and this sense of tinnitus goes away, even subconsciously, the audience, oh, it just starts yeah. feeling comfortable again, yeah. you know? And that's a way to do it. Another way you, you have it is the native Atmos sound mix that you guys got to work with. And, you know, whether that is, is a tool that allows you to only play a sound from one side of the room, let's say baby takes his earbud off on the left side, so now we're hearing just stuff from the right. Which uh, in of itself is a very uh, risky thing to do because, again, that's the kind of thing that you've got to be careful that it's, it's not just, you know, you're sitting there in the theatre and you're like, oh, my God, something's up with the speakers. You know, you've got to do it in such a way that, you're, that the audience gets it. In fact, and that's why very early on we introduced that idea when he's getting the coffee in the coffee shop. We do that at the very pretty early on in the process so that the audience understands that this is the sonic environment that you're going to be listening to for the next kind of 90 minutes. So I wanted to ask you specifically about the sound mixing period on Baby Driver. How many days did you got? Well, I think it's hard to ask how many days did you have because when did you really begin and when did you stop? Yeah. You know, you were always there. So let me rephrase that by asking how on Baby Driver and, and any other movie in general, how do you use the re-recording mixing phase as the last, you know, filmmaking step to focus the audience's attention into what's important? Well, it's interesting. It never ceases to amaze me how much you can mix in the cut and i've got a good speak i have a good speaker set up in my cutting room and a mixing desk when you get it into a larger environment i mean regardless whether it's atmos or 5.1 or 7.1 things just change and things as much as you think this sequence is good to go in my cutting room and i really don't think we're going to have much to do on the mix stage that's never the case you know there are certain things that i mean a lot of things were figured out well in advance, by the time we got to the final mix stage, we had done, I think, three temp mixes. And each time, you know, you're just refining it more and more. And, you know, a lot of ideas were already fleshed out and we knew where we wanted to be for the final mix. And, you know, this thing about how Pro Tools has helped us and bouncing back and forth between the picture department and the sound department. And, you know, even to the point that Edgar would come into my cutting room, look at a sequence, there were fader moves that I would do with him there that made it through to the final mix. But there's also an awful lot still that you have to then figure out in that final mix stage. You know, I remember like the hardest sequence to figure out for the mix for me was the Brighton Rock sequence at the end because you've had a lot of action and a lot of sonic information thrown at you up to that point. And then you go into this last final big car chase sequence with Freddie Mercury screaming his vocals, his, his high falsetto vocals at full whack 
and you desperately want to hear every detail in that mix, but you also, again, don't want the audience to, you know, come away like with their, with their, with their ears ringing. And so that was a, a lot of figuring out in the oh, atmos environment how best to play. But that's an interesting point that I don't think a lot of other movies have to deal with. So let's say I'm working on a, on a film without a soundtrack, but purely a score. The music is playing, we start talking, the music dims down. You know, the composer makes her way and, and lowers the music, but Baby Driver is working off pre-recorded songs yeah. where they didn't care 20 years ago if you're going to start having dialogue midway through totally. the scene. You mentioned Freddie Mercury, but it could be a, a number of songs. How do you have to work th then with a song which continues to have lyrics going yeah. over the dialogue, totally. but don't allow the audience to perceive that you just dim yeah. the song and that was Yeah, and that was one of the many challenges. First and foremost, you've got music that when you throw it up on a mix stage and you're playing it on big theatrical speakers, does not sound nice. Because you have mono tracks. Some of them were mono, mono some of the, most of them were stereo, but they just don't sound, you know, like uh, the damn neat, neat, neat was a tough one. So basically what, what, what I did was, and you don't normally do this, I did a pre-mix of the music. So each music cue I would throw up on the mix stage I would do a process of EQing, taking certain frequencies out that were the frequencies that would hurt your ear, enhance other frequencies that sounded uh, more pleasing to the ear, but hope, hopefully keeping the vibe of the track the same so that it doesn't sound weird. So there's an EQ thing you have to do first. Then there's a spatial thing because you it's just a stereo mix that you have to throw up in an environment where there are many, many speakers. And then when you're mixing it against everything, it's trying to, normally you have ebbs and flows in the music that have been composed and put in there by the composer. That luxury did not exist. And also he's listening to it on his ear. That, that's the story point. He, he, this is the music he's listening to and you're supposed to be hearing it from his perspective. So it's a variety of, it's like sometimes it's just doing these kind of fader moves that are so subtle, you don't hopefully perceive them. It's pushing and pulling things around the music at certain points, even though you're not touching the music, to give the perception that you're pulling the music down. And it's quite often it was frequency based. So rather than pulling the fader down, I was EQing and doing things within the music. So if there was a if there's the vocals, I would just try and zoom in on the vocals and EQ those down, but keeping the level the same. That that is where we save time on the mix stage. I think we had like a three-week final mix, which isn't a small amount of time, but it's not the greatest amount of time. But those kind of things, some of those kind of things, I was able to figure out and do on my mix desk in my cutting room beforehand that gave, gave me a fighting chance of bringing it in on time. Because I don't think we did any overtime. And I don't think, we certainly didn't go over budget on the mix. Baby Driver was, obviously it was a very unique movie for me and for us all. It was a series of conundrums. It really was. Every sequence. I was asked to give a talk to some film students a few months ago, actually, and the, the guy beforehand said, okay, give, give me a couple of sequences that you want to talk about in advance. And I just said to him, you can just throw it. You ask me about any sequence and I can tell you. Each one was force. a challenge in its own way. Yeah, for various reasons. All great movies and all great work environments, the biggest challenge, the bigger the challenge, the bigger reward, right? That's how it works. Needless to say, I think part of the challenge for you guys must have been that you're, for the first time in a way, you're inventing the wheel. Cause to that level, 
you know, having picture Mary sound in that way, I don't think it had ever been tried and it was incredibly successful. I certainly felt like that. I would not dare to say that because I'm sure someone could come back and say, well, back we did this, you know, everyone has done it to it. We even did it in Mad Mac. There's a moment when they're banging on a pipe on the wall rig that turns into drums that we did on the stage that we figured out on the, on the dub stage. But to that degree, I don't think it had been done before. And I certainly had very little in the way of reference to try and everything that I learn on a movie, I put in my back pocket and try and move forward and, and have it in some regard to reference on the next one. You know, you never stop learning. But I certainly, like I said, that first moment when I looked at the first two reels, I was just almost in shock because I couldn't, I had no idea how, I knew no reference of it. We'd done a few things before, like on Shaun of the Dead, when uh, John the barman's getting hit with a pool, uh, pool Yeah, the Queen song. The Queen song and the Roxy fight in Scott Pilgrim. We'd done it a little bit, okay, but to that degree. So let me close this Baby Driver chapter by asking you about your collaboration with Edgar. And, and I'm gonna quote back something to you that you said about it. I am only as good as the director I work with. It's interesting to note as Edgar's directing style is evolving, I'm keeping up with him and he's changing as a director, evolving my sound design taste to what he's asking for, both picture and sound. Each Edgar Wright movie is completely different in its own way. So why do you think your approach together has been so much fun over the years? What what I think you and Edgar do so well is the ability to extract comedy out of not just smash cuts, but, you know, editing and sound together. Yeah. Could you talk about how, you know, you're able to extract laughter from, from an opportunity of narrowing the two together for a moment? Well, I'm glad the quote you quoted back to me is one that I agree with because I could have said something like, oh, why did I say that? But it's true. I mean, I am only as good as my director I, and, and, and I can only do what my director allows me to do. Ultimately, my job when I'm employed by a studio or a producer is to service the director's needs and wishes. So if they only want it to reflect the set, only want me to reflect what's happening on screen, that's what I will do. If they want me to put a 1K tone throughout the whole movie, that's what I will do. The great thing with Edgar is he, and he's just, and this is like from, this is not something he's he's evolved with. I mean, literally from from space, which I didn't do, which was his TV series, he's been aware of how sound can totally reinforce and expand what is happening on screen. I, you know, I'm not lying when I say he pushes you to new places. You know, he's great in that he sets up this kind of environment which is unique in of itself. I mean, something like Shaun of the Dead when it came along was so new, hadn't really been done before. You could also say the same for Scott Pilgrim and for, certainly for Baby Driver. I mean, they're all kind of, they're new environments but then what he does is he he constructs this environment and then he'll say to me, look, this is my thinking and this is what I want to achieve. But he, he so doesn't micromanage that aspect of it. And on one hand, the level of detail in his avid tracks is unsurpassed from any other director that I work with. Like literally, I remember on Scott Pilgrim seeing a sequence that had all been done in the Avid and I turned, when I watched it for the first time with my dialogue supervisor and my sound, my other co-sound designer, I'm like, I don't know what to add to this. It's, it's been, it's so perfect. Now, eventually, we, you know, we, we do and we, we, you get into it and you start working with stuff. But the level of detail that he constructs in that first instance is certainly is more detailed than the normal director that I work with. 
And that's why he gets me on so early on nowadays, because he wants me to construct that for him. But on the flip side, he doesn't, like I say, he doesn't micromanage. He's happy for you to take that and just run with it and have fun with it and potentially take it in another direction. And you can play it to him and he's totally accepting of it. He's like, that's a really great, you know, the reason why he works with these long-term collaborators is that he wants us all to chip in our ideas. And when you have a director who is not only a genius, like I truly think he is, but also aware of what my department, for want of a better word, can do, but then also he is collaborative and lets you then take that ball and run with it. And, you know, not every idea works by any stretch of the imagination, but he is always willing to try something completely off the wall if needs be. And when you put all those kind of different facets together, that's what produces those kind of results. You're mentioning the comedy aspects. It works, the, the sonic landscape on those movies work for, on different levels. It's not just the smash cut. It's also, he's a big believer in the kind of diegetic sounds working you know, sonically and for comedic values. You know, there's, there's things in like Hot Fuzz when they'll be in the pub talking about murder and we've got people laughing in the background that you wouldn't even pick up on, but it's constantly this stuff. Or in Scott Pilgrim, we've got bottle opens on eye blinks or that, you know, he's always a big believer in trying to find anything all the time throughout the thread of the movie that is a constant kind of little nod to anything that gets a bit of extra comedic value. Okay, let's start with Launchpad McQuack. Uh, that's not the actual title of this. I think that's what we're talking about in regards to you guys like crafting and spending so much time to find these moments and it in the end coming together for one big subconscious experience for the audience. Yeah. So let me begin to wrap things up by asking you about another project. So from my understanding, you wrapped Baby Driver in London on a Friday yeah. and you only had a weekend to rest because you were beginning Jumanji on, on that Monday when you flew back mm -hmm. over here. Let me, let me ask you about Jumanji. What were some of the possible challenges, but also opportunities that you guys had on that one the the change between baby driver and jumanji is why i love my job because they are so two different movies and i i probably was quoted as saying and i, I remember i was on the plane taxiing to leave london not knowing how successful baby driver was going to be but being so happy about what i had done on baby driver and thinking you know like ah Jumanji is going to be easy. It's going to be, I mean, you know, well, it's, there's no challenges there compared to Baby Driver. And of course, you turn up on a Monday morning and you see the first cut of the movie and it's like, oh, man, how do we do this? And it's just a different set of challenges. There was an interesting challenge as well because I hadn't worked with the director before and I hadn't worked with the picture editor before. That was, you've got to dial into what it is, the sensibilities of the creatives on show A is not necessarily going to be the same as show B. And so... From day one, I've got to try and dial into what Jake Kasdan, the director, is thinking about and service those needs as quickly as possible because, of course, he doesn't, know, you know, I've been employed by Sony and I have no past relationship with him and I want him to feel confident in my capabilities. So, you know, I want, to, I want him to feel as relaxed with me as quickly as possible. So I've got to kind of prove my worth as quickly as possible. 
as regard to challenges, it's fun because you know you've got a, it's all essentially a computer game. So you there's no you, you don't have to be realistic and you don't have to. It's a comedy and it's you've got slapstick moments. Equally, it's a Hollywood blockbuster that needs to sound as such in various sequences, and you want it to punch in the same weight class as the Marvels. So it's finding that balance. It's finding that balance between slapstick comedy and it using sonic tools to help the audience laugh and to reinforce the comedy that's on screen. And then it's also, you know, things like that helicopter sequence making it kick ass so that it's invigorating and dramatic as much as, you know, what people are used to seeing these days. Yeah, and lots of animals. And too. lots of animals, yeah. <laughs> Our sound engineer, Eric, suggests I conclude the episode by asking you to just shine a spotlight on any, you know, project, you know, whether it's television or film that you've seen recently, you were surprised by in terms of great sound work. What should people check out that you may have seen recently and, and you were like, that's, that's good work? You know, what I would say about television is I I am in awe of the level of amazing sound that those people do, TV people, with such a smaller time frame than, you know, we're spo I'm spoiled. I get months to work on stuff and re-examine scenes and go back, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve times. And I know those, the guys in TV are like, we got to hit it hard and we get one go at it and, and it sounds amazing. So... It's, I mean, it's, I'm always in awe of that. Movies, I, I can get very depressed when I go to a cinema to watch movies that sound great because I, I feel like, oh man, I wish I'd have done that. <laughs> you know, sci-fi sci movies sound great. I watched Annihilation recently and going back to our conversation about being invested and you pay your money, Annihilation is, is, an, is a great movie that perhaps if you were watching it on Netflix, as it was in the in Europe, it was a yeah. Netflix release, whether you would stay with it because it has its own pace and it's not necessarily a Hollywood movie. It's an amazing movie and I loved it. And it's and it's got great sound design in it. I mean, I was struck with that. And I, I, I'm not sure how much of it was sound design and how much of it was Jeff Barrett, the, the composer. But that was... That was a great example of not only great storytelling and great pacing, but great sound and sound design and composition, again, that, that was made for, I believe, the cinema and deserves to be seen in the cinema. Julian, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to talk to us today. It's been a lot of fun. And again, thank you so, so much. Thank you. Thanks a lot. And there you have it, folks. We would like to thank Julian for taking the time to come chat with us. Thanks again, and stay tuned for upcoming episodes. I'm Brando Benetton, and you've been listening to Soundstage Access.